I'm Bill Wilson, and along with my friend Jim Gibson, I started a little punk label called Blackout Records in 1989. Over the years, we've released records from H2O, Killing Time, Sheer Terror, Killy Riddles, Dead Guy, The New Bomb Turks, and many more. The Mad at the World podcast is a collection of conversations with our bands and extended family who have great stories to tell about their records, their art, the road, and growing up against the grain. On this second episode of Mad at the World, we're going to talk to the guys from Outburst. Last year, Blackout released an expanded version of the band's classic Miles to Go EP, along with a collection of tracks from their demo and a remastered version of The Hard Way from the world the world things are calm. We also did a 15-minute documentary, which can be found at our YouTube channel. Alongside that, we also released a compilation of great new and newish bands, including Crime Watch, Initiate, Misery, Higher Power, and Power Trip, doing their favorite outburst covers called Hot Shit Attitude. So with that, let's kick it off. Today on the second episode of the Mad at the World podcast, we have uh, Joe Sonko, who's the drummer and primary lyricist for Outburst. Joe, say hi. Hey, everybody. This is Joe. And we also have George from Outburst, the guitar player and primary songwriter for the band. Hey, what's up? We also have a special guest, Darren Nanos, uh, who directed the Outburst documentary. Darren, say hello. Hey, everyone. How you doing? Cool. And the documentary is available on YouTube on the Blackout channel if you want to check it out. Um, we did, we covered a lot of the history um, in the documentary, so I don't want to rehash a lot of it. But what I wanted to do was pull some of the threads that we didn't discuss, some new things that have happened, kind of, you know, and really have a, a more in-depth conversation uh you know, with the band and kind of cover some of the things that we didn't. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about you guys growing up in Astoria, right? In the Killing Time episode, there was a lot about Yonkers and Westchester and how it was still stuck um, in the 70s while it was the middle 80s. Did you guys experience the same kind of, you know, retro thing going on in Astoria or because you guys were so close to the city, you know, you felt a little bit more in touch with the decade. Yeah, this is Georgia. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's a little bit different, right? Because Astoria is basically over the river to Manhattan. You know what I mean? Uh, it, it was less suburban uh, and, and more urban than, than let's say, Yonkers. So we were, we were pretty much in the 80s and, uh, you know, we were we were square into our heavy metal, you know, hip hop and uh, whatever else was hot in Queens at the time, um, as well as you know our punk rock music. Um, but there were some guys who still listened to Zeppelin and the Doors. I know what they're talking about, but we were more, uh, I guess, a little bit more urban than suburban in where we grew up in Astoria, Queens. Hey, this is Joe, and um, to George's point, I think that now that you asked that, and I look back on it the way you framed it. Um, it didn't really feel that much like we were in a time warp because everything that was, you know, you look in 2020 and you look back at how it developed for us growing up on the block with, like George said, we had heavy metal, which was like, we, we watched that whole thrash thing take birth with Metallica and, you know, Anthrax and Slayer. 
And then hip hop was, you know, right under our noses with all the Queens bands like Run DMC and Eric B and Rakim and LL Cool J. That all was taking place right in front of us, you know? So it didn't feel like we were in a, uh, in a, in a time warp. Um, and then of course we had, uh, our, our neighbor, uh, AJ Novello from Leeway was, um, buying all the current, um, uh, hardcore records like Murphy's law at the time, Ludacris, Chrome Ags. So it was new, it was fresh. So it wasn't really like when we, we heard about it, it was already like old, you know, it was happening right in front of our eyes. So it didn't really feel that much like a time warp. So did you hear about new music from people like, or did you hear about music from record stores for, cause for me, you know, my, you know, what we talked about in the killing time episode is that, you know, all of the guys from Yonkers, you know, met at their local record store, right? That was kind of the place where all the freaks and ne'er-do-wells kind of gathered. And that's how we met. And there was this guy behind the counter who would always kind of be pushing our taste to the next level. So for you guys, I guess AJ was really that guy. Is that is that kind of Yeah, it was more like mixtape oriented than it was going to the stores because we, if we went to sound city on steinway street in Astoria, where we bought our records it was more like you know you could see iron maiden ozzy that type of stuff and on the new wave side maybe duran duran and depeche mode were highlighted but we had to hear these songs from other places and and aj bring those sort of mixtapes uh with punk rock uh, and bands like zero boys that we and circle jerks that we were really into uh, mixed with stuff like except you know what I mean and, and overseas metal uh, you know as well as Metallica from San Francisco and when when Kill Them All first came out we were like you know flipping our lids to that as, as probably to me you know the best metal album of all time but uh, yeah we, it was more mixtape oriented we would exchange mixtapes and we would uh, Jojo was the he can speak a little bit more to because he was the king of the mixtape <laughs> you know the funny thing is um AJ, we would always ask AJ, like, where did you go to get this? Where did you go to get this SOD record, you know, uh, or this Accept record? And he would say, you know, he would go down to Bleaker Bob's. Um, he mentioned, like, you know, in Queens, there was a place called Numbers in uh, Jackson Heights, which is like on 37th Avenue, which was, you know, not that far from Astoria. And so we would, you know, when we got a chance, we would, they would have stuff that Sound City wouldn't have. Um, so you can go there and get your nuclear assault and your man of war. And your, you know, agnostic front, you know, back then going to like the village to like 8th Street and looking for records, that was kind of like an adventure. It was like an excursion. And so, you know, while AJ brought most of the music to us, every now and then, if you had like a Saturday afternoon or something, you had a couple of bucks, you know, to take the train and, and go see what was out there for yourself. Now, a lot of times you go record shopping and probably the same as the guys in Yonkers. I think Bleaker Bob was the same kind of thing. Like, hey, you want this, uh, you want this Violators, you want this uh, Ludacrist. And some of them were great. And then some of them, his recommendations were, weren't always winners either. Uh, I think Mentors was the one I remember personally trying to push on me. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'd rather go with this, uh, you know, overkill record that I'm holding in my hand already. Things like that. But um, yeah, we did have our sources to find new music. And there was also, you know, maybe George can expound on this, but we, we walked around on the block with a radio at all times. And sometimes when you weren't playing mixtapes, um, I want to say it's Thursday nights. Do you remember a show called Hellhole? You guys remember? It was the predecessor to Crucial Chaos. 
And they played a little more metal than hardcore. I think Crucial Chaos was strictly hardcore um, by the time Spermicide got that show. But Hellhole was their introduction to like, you know, hey, there's college radio. Hey, there's um, they're playing like all this underground metal and hardcore. Um, you know, you'd hear Agnostic Front or you'd hear the Ramones on there. So th- those are kind of like the sources of our, our acquiring music, you know. Right, right. So you kind of had to be home and like ready with a tape for that kind of thing. Yeah, that that was our SoundCloud. You know what I mean? Like, 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 I mean, I remember listening to, you know, it was pr- like, like just tuning the radio up and down the dial to try to see if I could hear anything that I would possibly like. And over the course of this incredible static, like you'd hear like, right. And then you would finally like have to like put, you know, uh, right. a tinfoil and hangers on your radio to try to hang them out the window to get this signal from, I guess it was NYU or FUV or whatever it is to listen to music that I thought I would like, but I had no idea who the fuck any of these bands were, Yeah, you know? And there was a show, Matthew O'Shaughnessy did a show in Westchester on WRTN at like three in the late <laughs> on Saturday nights, his dad owned the radio station and he took it over and became like this leading metal station on Saturday nights. Um, and he would have the SODs and the anthraxes, but the station probably had like 25 watts and probably didn't get anywhere outside of fucking Bronxville, right? But it was a real FM station, and I got to listen to a lot of music from, from that. Do you guys recall, like, as you were growing up, you know, I was just clearly you that. had an affinity yeah. for fast music. And when you were talking about Accept, for me, the song that made me realize that I liked loud and fast shit you know, probably was, you know, probably was fast as a shark. Oh, yeah. Like, the first time I ever heard that, I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, I wish everything sounded like this. And I had no idea because it was, really was metal and hardcore, even though as an adult, I the styles are very much blurred to me at this point, unless it's like more hardcore punk than it is, you know, the kind of stuff that, that we all did. But, you know, it was... It was this crazy gateway drug. Do you guys have a similar kind of gateway drug for you guys where it was like this, wow, I really love this fast shit? Yeah, I mean, that that album was was fantastic. I mean, Restless and Wild and Fast as a Shark were the two tracks that were kind of like, holy shit. You know, it's a very underrated record, too. So uh, I think we got it on like bloody red vinyl or something. We were so stoked, you know. Uh, you know, the other thing is when you wanted to discover new music you only had so much money in your pocket so if you did the you know the city excursion as jojo speaks of if you wanted st mark's pizza uh, you can only get like one record so you have to pick the right one you know that's why jojo was being picky and i get it but yeah I, i'd say you know the, the the gateway to hardcore with for me is is kill them all uh with seek and destroy and you know uh, jump in the fire and, and it was just such an amazing record i i, I listened to it when i work out today you know, I, I think I listened to it yesterday. Working it, it, it's just so intense. There's like some songs have three guitar, four guitar solos. It's just a tremendous record, and and just uh, to me, the the epitome of a, a metal thrash record that sort of gatewayed us into the Murphy's Laws of the world, and you know that with the punk side on Zero Boys and that stuff combined, made us get into hardcore, and and and, and that's why we have a little bit of a, I think a heavier sort of Black Sabbath-y-esque sort of riff 
to our tracks. You know what I mean? Uh, it's a little bit darker and minor uh, as opposed to some other bands that I'd say like Gorilla Biscuits is more punk major than we are. And we're more like breakdown, uh, you know, and killing time and, and rest in pieces in that vein. Wouldn't you say, Joe? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, kill them all. I don't know who in our, you know, demographic wouldn't list kill them all because that was just the, the game changer. Um, and then to see them like in magazines wearing like GBH and discharge shirts, you know, it's like these guys like look like long haired shags, but they're got, they've got like these hardcore and punk shirts. So what do you think? Right. And then just to, off spinning off of that, um, the local, the New York city kind of, uh, now they're a big four band, but their kind of East Coast counterparts was Anthrax, <clears throat> and their first album, Fistful of Metal, right? That was like a, you know, Charlie Bonante going 100 miles an hour, also, and then they spun off and did that SOD record, which was like a real gateway drug because that had like Billy Milano and, and Suicidal Tendencies references on the inside cover, and um, you know Dan Lilker's wearing like um, DRI shirts and stuff. Um, so that was sonically and visually along with Metallica. And I want to say Slayer too, because they were really fast. So, you know, the, all that 1984 through 86 stuff. Um, yeah. And it happened so fast. Right. And that's the whole thing. So looking back, especially from our perspective now, right. Do you feel like there's a difference between the genres given how blurred the sounds can be and kind of how you decipher this. I mean, I remember distinctly going to a show, one of my first matinees um, with two good friends who were in bands who I am not going to name. And I remember walking from CB's to Bleaker Bob's and these two guys had a fist fight, an actual fucking fist fight based on the fact that the crumb suckers were metal or they were hardcore. <laughs> Why can't you be both? <laughs> right. But no, yeah, that but, was but an important. You thing, couldn't right? be both back then. Yeah. Right. Think about that. You had to make a choice. You had to decide whether you were metal or whether you were hardcore. Actually, well, that's a th question I had for you, Joe, because you said long haired Jags, right? Yeah. So I know that at a certain point in the scene, like this is, it predates me, but it was kind of, you're either one or the other, right? Like, at what point in your neighborhood were people starting to like proudly wear that metal hairstyle versus like when it was kind of. So, I mean, we all used to have like long hair. Some of us could pull it off. Some of us couldn't. Like I couldn't pull it off, but it definitely didn't look by the way, by the time 88 rolled around and everyone had cut their hair and some of us were, you know, skinheads or whatever. But, you know, Bill, Bill will back me up on this. There's a documentary called, um, Disco's Revenge or something like that from Studio 54. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With uh, Venom, yeah. Venom Slayer yeah. and Exodus from, from, the, from the... Yeah, it's got one of the greatest lines in the world on it. This ain't about no tuna fish. <laughs> yeah. And this ain't about no trout. <laughs> the, song. the song is called Piranha. Yeah, fucking ridiculous. I love oh, it. JoJo, we in his garage would play Piranha like it, we was going yeah. out of style. We love that. We'd warm yeah, up. Yeah, Exodus is great. But so to your point, though, Darren's question is the, the hairstyles, because you have to be metal or hardcore. Well, if anybody knows the band YDL, there's Nick um, in the beginning of that video, and he's got a Venom shirt on and hair down to his shoulders, and he's doing the Spider-Man fingers. 
and you know that was what 1985 i think that was filmed and then you know you fast forward to like 1987 88 and he's in uh youth defense league right and he's rocking a skinhead so you know i guess you could be both why can't you, you have to look a certain way but you could like both i think crumb suckers are a great example of that you know i also think leeway is is in that vein of sort of one foot in hardcore one foot in metal and sort of a half a foot in like some some bebop hip hop type, you know, uh, genre where metal, some bands were having, you know, moving into that hip hop sort of area in the early nineties, uh, like rage, et cetera. But yeah, I mean, I think leeway is definitely in that vein. But so when you went to a leeway show, you'd have to watch your ass if you had long hair. Um, I remember pulling my brother out of a, a big fight in the middle of the floor in the Ritz, um, because metalheads were on one side and the skinheads were on the other. So it, it sort of didn't work marketing wise. It was weird. You know, it, it was uh, an odd political element when you walked into the club, when you just want to go there and, and have a good time and listen to music, but it wasn't always the case, you know? Oh, and Bill, it was like, it was like jail. Jail. you had to pick you. Yeah. It was like jail. And he had sort of a mullet longish hair. And I, I was getting a beer at the bar and I turned around and they were like, you know, I turned around, there were eight to 10 vampirish looking skinheads with suspenders jumping all over the top. <laughs> I had to pull them out. I ran in there, got them out of there and we had to leave. We didn't even see leeway. I don't think we even, I think maybe it was Cro-Mags uh, headlining or something, but it was just a mess, you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, oh, the other gateway uh, album bill backing up a little bit is definitely animosity from corrosion, which to me, when I saw them at CDs, I think it was 86 or show maybe. Right. And it was like a sweat box and, and they're sort of like kill them all sort of the metal gateway and sort of the hardcore gateway to us was really more of the, I think the animosity album COC, which was a game changer too. It was just so fast. Reed Mullen, you know, was, was ridiculous. And, uh, we, 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 we totally burnt out that record uh, as well. So that was one of the, the big ones for us. Did you guys, you guys as a band or people never really adopted like, because I remember distinctly for me and, you know, I don't know how it was for you, but when you go under sort of the, the hardcore transformation, it's almost like becoming a monk where you shave your head and you disavow anything that previously came before. It's like you almost yeah. change your name, right? Um, you know, I remember distinctly selling a lot of my metal records that I deeply regret until this day to buy a lot of super b-list fucking hardcore wow um but i also remember you know saying you know consciously going from my kind of middleware state which was the pollen from gbh gbh spike where i could like have it kind of long you know but i could also spike it up you know to the um to totally committing to you know being a boot boy for like two years right and kind of really diving into kind of that, you know, you know, diving into oi, diving into everything and, you know, kind of self-declaring that this is who I was now, because that was, that's important to an adolescent, right? It's not important to me now, but it was important as an adolescent. You guys never really adopted a look. I think that was the look, is the nonconformist kind of, you know, you know, I think as uh, Darren and you pointed out in the documentary, there's like a whole hodgepodge worth of like images on that album cover that BJ shot of, of Masa Go. And, 
you know, the internet took hold of it and like made it like legendary and also cringeworthy. Some of the, you know, they were mocking us for the appearance, but I, I think there are some people who kind of like think that that's the, yeah, that's cool. Like that, that they didn't give a shit about how they look, you know? Yeah. Your lack of attitude was, your attitude. I want to say the most conformist <laughs> thing I did, I think in 88, I bought a, I bought a varsity jacket because everyone was wearing them and I, I thought they looked kind of nice, but I didn't want to fit in. I just, I just, but no X, no X, no, no nothing X, across the right? back. It was just a black and white varsity jacket. And, uh, I remember Dylan Walter's brother, we used to, we used to work together. Um, <laughs> he would say like, he would say like, Oh yeah, you want to put something on that? And, you know, like a uh, youth crew or, or even my name on the side. I'm like, nah, I just like, it just looks nice to me. Like it reminded me of like, um, I don't know that movie. Remember the Remember the Titans when all the football guys are wearing that right. that sort of jacket. You know, it wasn't like any kind of statement of like I belong to this crew. I want to look like that. You know, that group. I just that's only that's. Joe, that's why I think the you know the cover of Miles to Go. Everyone kind of mocks it a bit, but because we're all different people. If you look at that photo, I mean, between between Brian with the long hair and and. Jay sort of with the with the hip hop you know Queens look and, and and sort of you know Mike Wells with that sort of preppy Brooklyn slash hardcore look you know we, we all have our different thing you know what I mean you have Def Jam shirt on I mean and, and I guess I was the Guido of the group but we, we did what we did it's like we didn't really care we went on stage like that you know and then we didn't we didn't really care what people thought you know if we were accepted by anybody or not accepted by anybody. But that's what, you know, punk rock hardcore was really about. You know, we, we don't, we didn't really care. You know, it, we knew our music was, was going to, you know, perform well live and, and we went up there to play it. And that's what we loved about the scene is mostly the music. It's funny because the more stories I hear of the old scene, you know, you think about the, the music, the lyrical content, it's so much about everyone's accepted, you know, we're all here, we're all a crew, we're all family. But it's like, it seemed there were so many rules back then about what to do, what to what to look like, how to conform in the scene. Yeah, there, there was a lot of clicks. You know, if you think about the breakdown of it, you know, there's the alley, where Joe, Joe can get into it better, then there's the alleyway crew guys, then there was sort of the war zone, like Lower East Side, uh, True Blood Hardcore guys. Uh, we were sort of bridge and tunnel, you know, Guido Hip Hop, kids coming and then there was that metalish uh hybrid i mean it was just so many different you know groups and of course the straight edge you know gorilla biscuit youth of the day type guys we were great guys um but yeah it was all different you know and they always accepted us they were great guys and and, and you know of course the yonkers guys were, were to us the best and we love going to shows with uh you know Rod Dio at the time and then you know killing time uh, because they, they were kind of like us the most, I think, you know, Bill can probably attest to that where they were just regular dudes that wrote really good music and, and, and loved hardcore, uh, not as much as being part of the lower East side scene per se, as to, you know, go in there and, and, and have a great time and kill it at CBGB's, you know? I want to say image wise to add to that, I think guys in raw deal and, you know, break down, break down raw deal. I can't really attest to them or remember them having any kind of look, right? They just <laughs> even on stage pictures of them like wearing t-shirts well, and jeans. Tompkins, let's think about Tompkins the belly shirt. I mean, that's famous. <laughs> the internet. Oh, made Jeff, that was that who's wearing the belly shirt in that? <laughs> Jeff, yeah, right? Jeff. <laughs> but that wasn't his always wardrobe. That was that was just a happenstance. I mean, I mean, Rich. that can I be mean, true, but 
to the next generation, that's like the the legendary performance. <laughs> so you think like when you picture <laughs> you picture breakdown, you just picture the Billy <laughs> shirt. <laughs> Oh, that's fucking awesome. I had no idea that that's the <laughs> archetypal image that people have of breakdown with his like like you know, I, they, I feel like everyone had their one like, you know, misstep and I think that was it. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's great. I love it, but actually a few people in DC, I remember a couple years back brought it back that that look and I was just like, are we serious? That's was that as an homage thing. to breakdown? Like the belly shirt? I, I guess so. I don't know. It, wasn't my thing, that's for sure. Joe, Joe, Joe had the best shirt of all time is the Debbie Gibson yes, shirt. Yes, I did have the Debbie Gibson shirt. And I I just remember the, the confused look on people's faces when I'd like load in during the load in on matinees the day I did wear that shirt. And I'm walking through the place and like, you know, these people like they're pointing at my shirt. But to like to, to each other. I'm like, yeah, I, I'm gonna go up there and like play music and you're gonna slam dance, but I'm wearing this shirt of uh, the girl who sang Electric Youth. You know, just to fuck. You always had an eclectic style. Like even when you were recording, like you're you're a very musical person. And you know, if anybody listened to any of the other podcasts that you were on, or listened to your top ten, or whatever, you have a very broad eclectic musical taste, and you always did, right? So you were listening to hip hop as much as you were listening to metal because you were listening to shit from Queens, right? And the question is: Is what did that eclectic taste in music bring actually to Outburst as you were write, as you were kind of writing well, songs? Well, that George, I mean, George had the Sabbath and you know metal influences. He he won't go so far. He you know as to say he liked Debbie Gibson, <laughs> but but we did have other tastes. Like you know all of us did. You know Jay loved hip hop and Brian listened to a lot of crust punk that doesn't you know doesn't really like you know translate into hardcore and George like. You know, he liked Duran Duran. I think 1988's Big Thing was was a big cassette in our car, you know, like driving around. Um, yeah, I, I like the Duran. I still like Duran Duran. I think the bass playing is and the rhythm section for Duran Duran was really different and, and for, for new wave bands. I, I liked them a lot. I liked, uh, you know, Taylor. So St. John's Prep seems like somebody could make a retro, like, hardcore high movie, you know? <laughs> It wasn't like it wasn't like John Hughes style. It was obviously very urban and very different. But you know, what what was it like back then? You know, was there animosity between as you were talking about like the Guidos and the Jocks and you know whatever it is with the the metal kids or the music people? Like, what was that like? Because that also frames how people grow up and listen to music and kind of where their tastes head. Yeah, you have to realize too, Bill, that it was a Catholic school. So Bryant High School was zoned for our public school, and it was really a rough school. So if you didn't have the grades to make it to St. John's Prep, you had to go to Bryant or LIC, which are very tough schools. So we weren't so urban. It was more suburban-like. You know, it was a mix of, uh, you know, you had your rock sort of burnout crew guy, then you had your Greedos, and then you had, you know, uh, you know, the, the punk guys, which were us, of course. Um, but you had this new wave group of people too. So it was a mixture of everybody, but it was it was pretty G-rated, uh, to tell you the truth. And and, you know, we found each other in that group and became a band, uh, because we really felt that, you know, we didn't really uh, we wanted to rebel sort of against that sort of G-rated 
feel that was going on within our Catholic high school. But, you know, some of our friends, most of our, my friends were thrown out of junior year and didn't make it <laughs> to the end because, you know, they got in trouble or expelled from the school. It was, it was it, there was some really, you know, bad eggs in there. They were gone by my senior year. And that's when we really started our band. As far as, far as the hardcore aspect of it goes, really the only person at, when we were students who had gone on, he was a little older than us, was Davey Gunner. He graduated ahead of us. He was already in Kraut. They started Kraut. AJ was still on the Unruled. Anthony was kind of still starting token entry. Like nothing had really formed yet. And then people who like went to LIC and Brian, I think like Walter went to LIC. There was also like Arthur uh, Smilios went to McClancy. Like the, the Queens had a lot of like, you know, different schools in it but um st john's prep happened to have the most concentrated uh new york hardcore i guess um alumni but really most hardcore yes that's happening. right <laughs> we, had a, we had a good ratio of nyhd there um well actually here's a side question for you guys if it were a john hughes movie who would play who in the 80s from all from st john's prep <laughs> yeah from your so, friend group who would you cast, like dream cast for all the members of the, the New York hardcore scene? You know the movie Some Kind of Wonderful? Uh, I've um, never seen it. For anyone who knows that movie, the, the character, there's a skinhead character in that movie that befriends um, Eric Stoltz. And he kind of like, you know, antagonizes him and then becomes his friend. That always reminded me of Anthony Caminale. Um because he looked intimidating. He had safety pins and, you know, the, 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 the Doc Martens. But then you get to know him and he is like this hilarious, like, you know, sweetheart almost, right? Yeah. He, he, Joe, he's definitely the Robert Robert Downey Jr. wise ass of, <laughs> of the school, right? That, that's a perfect casting yeah. for him. Yeah. So, you know, you talk about like in the documentary, Brian kind of self-proclaims himself as being the second angriest guy in high school next to Anthony Caminale, um, from Run right. and Killing Time. So, so, if, so how did you connect with him? Because, you know, clearly he was way more punk than you guys were. What was the connection there? Or was it just classmates and you guys were always friends? He was actually in George's homeroom since the beginning. Cause they're both, both of their last names start with D. Um, and I've actually got a picture of them like in sophomore year and the class photo of their sophomore year. And they're, they're in the same picture and they both look nothing like they did by the time we got together by senior year. Um, but yeah, we were just walking amongst each other. And you never know anybody's musical taste unless you actually say it. So I remember one day Chris Bruno, who was our original bassist, um, I forgot. He, I think he mentioned to like Jay that he like kind of liked hardcore. But we liked a different hardcore. We liked like Nuclear Assault, SOD hardcore. We didn't really um, delve into like, I don't know, Murphy's Law and Chromex just yet, you know, until like more punk yeah. style hardcore. And um, yeah. Chris Chris Bruno happened to like know the guys in Jackson Heights, so he knew like um, Gus Pena and Walter Schreifels and Arthur. He knew the Gorilla Biscuits guys, um, token entry guys like Ernie Parada. Um, so we kind of like by senior year we started like to exchange like it's like a musical exchange program. And I just remember driving in his car one time senior year, and I gave him the Anthrax Among the Living tape. And he loaned me the token entry demo. And so I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. It's like, um, that's an interesting yeah, trend. And, and the Reese's commercial with like the guys walking down the street and they crash into each other. And you've got your peanut butter on my chocolate, you know, and you've got your <laughs> chocolate on my peanut butter. Hey, this tastes great. Right. So that was, that was what I remember about meeting Brian and 
Chris is uh, once we knew we, took, we all liked heavy music or fast music, then we started to like, you know, exchange. Who do you like? Well, I like this band. Well, how about you? You know, I never considered that because in a Catholic school, you wore uniforms. Yeah. Right? yeah. So you can't like wear your favorite band shirt or whatever. You kind of just have to like really dig into people and be like, what are you about? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, but you have you could you could wear patches on your jacket, right, Joe? And then uh, that would kind of show a little bit as to what you're into, and you know your locker art, I guess, would uh, express your. Uh, that's true. Your your, your yeah interests. yeah we did have the locker, and you know if you swung it wide open and we're hanging out there, you could see you know anyone's got. I had a Crumb Suckers flyer, a Ludacris flyer in my in my locker senior year. You know, like, and anyone who walked by were like, who the hell is that? Or you'd be like, oh, that's pretty cool that you have that. And that's how you kind of outdo yourself to each other, you know? Uh, this is all giving me PS, uh, PTSD <laughs> from my days in Catholic school. I remember, like, the horrible, like, wearing the horrible Capizios, pleated fucking pants, and the sock tie. What motherfucker came up with that thing? Yeah, and, and your bugle boy pants, you know, that you can wear. <laughs> I I feel for you guys. That sounds terrible. It was it was terrible. It was just so terrible. It was just it was. I I don't understand why people romanticize the fashion that day because it's it's just so fucking horrible. I couldn't wait to get out of school. Well, just period. But I couldn't wait to get out of school just to put on a pair of jeans and a fucking. Yeah, I think retro fashion. It's like it's cool, but you never. It might be not as cool to you if you had to wear it and go through it. Right, it may look it may look cool to somebody twenty years younger than you. Uh, High waisted jeans are universally a fucking horrible thing. <laughs> there was always there was always Jean Day, Jojo. So tell uh, tell Darren about Jean Day. Yeah, so you had to pay five dollars. You had to pay five dollars, and they would you know either go to the school kitty or some kind of charity, but it, they let you come to school not wearing your uniform. And it was like casual Friday, but you had to pay yeah, for it. Yeah. What? That's like a fun. Like a fun <laughs> what did they use the money for? I don't know. Really? I really, you know. We're like Catholic church, man. Yeah. <laughs> like what? Like with the Jesuits, like using that to buy coke. Like, yeah, it was a fundraising doing? kind of thing. But then, yeah, right. George is right. You would sometimes see somebody wearing the Metallica shirt or the you know the Anthrax oh, wow. shirt. Like, oh, look at that. And then I think you know Brian would always wear these like creepers, which is like, you know pretty like punk rock or hardcore shoe at the time, punk right? Shoe, you know. Yeah. And uh, you'd see Kamen Ali wearing like his Doc Martens, you know, finally he could wear the Oxbloods because if he tried it on uniform, did non-gene days, he'd get, you know, sent home or something, you know. You get sent home. For, I mean, I would do that every day. I'd be like, all right, I'm going to wear my boots again. Uh, yeah, dress, St. John's Prep had a dress code. <laughs> pretty, pretty hardcore too. Damn. Man. In my high school, we had, you know, no dress code, but I used to wear a suit to fuck with people because everyone got so mad about it. <laughs> Like I did it like a couple times. Like me and a couple friends would just like dress in casual, like you know, leisure wear, basically, because everyone was trying to be so tough with their clothes. We're like, fuck it, we're gonna do the exact. Yeah, that's. Did you uh, did you stand in front of the school like you were in a Sears catalog with one guy looking at his watch, (laughs) smiling at each other? I mean, probably. There's, I think there's actually some photos like that. Yeah, Chris Bruno used to sport some of those cardigan sweaters. I remember. Those Benetton sweaters. Yeah, if you didn't know Chris Bruno like was hardcore, he definitely looked like a Guido, you know. But he did know a lot of like you know punk and hardcore once you started talking to him. Um, so yeah, it, it looks could be deceiving. You know, the hard way for me 
um, was my first kind of, it's the first time I think I, I heard the song. And when Anthony played me the demo, right, because Anthony Communale from Killing Time um, played me the demo originally, and he suggested that you guys, you know, get on this comp that I was putting together for, for my label. You know, I heard, you know, the hard way and it just blew me away, right? The intro into We Gotta Know, the intro into Bad Brain's Eye Against Eye. My, my brain really exploded when I heard that. So when I, when I always was curious, because I don't think I've ever asked you before, you know, George, as you were writing that, did you kind of intend to have that kind of build up in the song or what was your songwriting process around the hardware? Yeah, you know, well, the process that I really, you know, use for everything is always write the, the main riff first and then and then work around there and build upon that, you know. Uh, but the main riff was the slow uh, intro mosh part, you know, right after the drums. But I knew the drums would sound the drum beat was in my head kind of, and then uh, I knew it would sound great leading in with the drums. So I ran, you know, we went to Roxy studio, I think Jojo. And then uh, before we even played anything, I said, Jojo, just get on the drums, do, do this. And, and he changed it slightly and uh, it was like, that was it. And then I, and I played the riff and then, you know, the, the bass came in and followed along and, you know, we developed it from, from there, but I already had the, the three parts. I mean, we knew, that well, I did anyway. That that was my favorite riff that I that I've, that I've written. So at least until till the date, I I always thought uh, you know misunderstood was my favorite song that I wrote. But I I, I always knew that that the hard way was was something that was was going to be a great you know drum intro type type song. Yeah, you want to know? I think that um, the hard way, like we had the demo songs. I think it was six songs, and then. You know, he started writing more like different sounding songs. I think Thin Ice was next, Controlled, uh, No Choice. Those are songs that were we were being written after the demo. And then the hard way, um, he I remember he was just saying like, just put like a skanky beat to it, put something like really dirty, you know. And then he came up with the main riff, and um, that was different from even the newer songs like Thin Ice and and Controlled. Well, Controlled was pretty skanky too. But it just had like a it had like a, a structure to it, kind of like you know here's where you let's let's start the song off with the mosh part at the beginning and the end, not in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we got that from like Attitude Adjustment because we listened to they had a song called I think the title track was Attitude Adjustment where they start off with the mosh part and then they close with it. So that was kind of like what well, I was compared it to because it was different. You know, usually you get the fast song and then you wait for the break and the bass drum is pounding and you know what's coming next is the is the mosh part. But this one started off with the mosh part <laughs> and ended with it. So I thought that was kind of unique. And like George said, it was a kind of an evolution in, in the songwriting, you know. Did you try to bring in like a, a hip hop flavor to your drumming? Like, was that, uh, you know, sort of a conscious decision? I, I, I don't think so. If you want, if you want to ask me, like, I think someone like Drago has a lot more hip hop timing than I do. Um, especially like the, that breakdown demo that he was like doing these funky beats to, I think that influenced me oh, a yeah. lot. Um, so shout outs to Drago, um, for like, you know, exposing you, you could play like sick hardcore and still have like a funky, like bob your head to it, but it wasn't a conscious yeah. thing. Maybe I did rub off on me a little bit. So, you know, but some of our breaks do have that kind of funky rhythm, I guess. 
but no, it definitely. Yeah, I, mean, I feel like if if you stripped out all the other stuff, you could sample those drum beats. <laughs> it, it wasn't conscious, though. You know, I mean, we were listening to a lot of hip hop at the time, like George said. We we had it on our block and everything, along with other styles. But um, it just so maybe it seeped in there. Say, yeah, it definitely wasn't like a let me purposely try and put something funky here. You know. Yeah, so it's like um, almost uh, arrangement by osmosis where you incorporated things that you thought sounded good from all of your influences, which goes back to your eclectic musical taste, obviously, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that, that song mostly has a Sabbath feel to it, though, with the minor chords and stuff. And Tony Omi, I think, is if, it, if I was to pick one dude that I influenced, got influenced the most from, it's probably him because he's the riff master almighty. You know what I mean? There's no, no one better at it than him. Uh, but yeah, and then we did that song live, you know, you, you can kind of tell after the third or fourth time performing it, that it, it obviously became our, our, our encore track, you know what I mean, throughout the shows. So, uh, the kids were digging it. I think that lyrics are the dividing point between punk and metal in a lot of cases. Stylistic elements can ebb and they can flow. Joe... You know, as you were writing lyrics to The Hard Way, writing lyrics to Mad at the World, you know, these are all very personal. What were you thinking when you were writing some of those lyrics? So uh, Mad at the World, Learn to Care, and True were written by Brian. They were the first three lyrics, uh, sets of lyrics that he wrote. And then he said, why don't you give this a try? I think it was like Mission Impossible or something. All the demo songs, he wrote three and then he kind of handed the, songwriting duties over to me and his reason was like oh, you're much better at this than i am just tell me how you want me to sing it and so i was like well all right i'll give it a shot and he just i don't think he ever want I mean, he liked that he was being told how to sing it and he would deliver it the way you know in his classic fashion but he he didn't really object to anything that i was writing as far as your question about like what what was going through my mind you know, people call that stuff angry or tough guy. I don't really, I, I just think it's like everyday stuff, right? You're not singing about like, you know, King Diamond singing about coming to the coven, you know, and, and uh, <laughs> Slayer's singing about chemical warfare and your know, nuclear assault singing about like, you know, nuclear war and Iron Maiden's this and that, you know. So those are musically our influences, but ideal, ideologically, not really. We were just a bunch of kids in Queens with, you know, schoolwork to do. We right. had part-time jobs. But you know. nuclear assault wasn't in a nuclear war either. So, I mean. Correct. That's right. Yeah. That is one of the best. Yeah. That's a great song. And Andy Kamenali would say the metal is fantasy lyrics. Fantasy. It is. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. You know. And if you think about it, really, like, how can any of us relate to that kind of stuff? Right? I mean, if you think about some bands like Metallica, you know, they had, a, they had you know, whiplash about having a good time and banging your head to the crowd. Even we couldn't, that's probably as close as we got to like, you know, Oh, I guess we could relate to that because we do go to live shows. So I sort of like, was like, um, we were like 18, 19 years old. I never have enough money in my pocket. I'm never going to get this, you know, this, uh, final in, I, I can't study. I, I still got to do all this work for you know, around the house, things like that. So those are our problems. So you're frustrated and you know, I, I'll do it. I'll do it alone if anybody won't help me. Things like, you know, just DIY, I think, was the, the, the basis for it. Um, you know, to be your own man, stand on your own two feet, you know. Um, that's sort of like the kind of thing. I, that's all I could really really relate to. And then 
there's a song like Thin Ice or, you know, No Choice where, you know, you, there's like bad influences in your life, people you don't really care for. Who are those songs about? <laughs> you know, just bad apples or people you, you would get frustrated by and, you know. Um, He's looking for names. <laughs> Uh, we did mention this off off uh, off audio, but yeah, Bill Bill knows who they are. But some people who just like you know piss you off, and you want to write write about them and how you feel towards them. And you know, there there are a couple songs like that. So you know, yeah, man. I mean, you look at some of your songs, right? You look at Mad at the World. You look at Miles to Go. Both of those songs are pretty fucking dark, and. You know, for a band that wasn't terribly image conscious, you know, conscious and funny in person, like you guys were super easy to get along with. That song hits pretty hard, especially the closer to death line in Miles to Go. Like, did you so you always had that sense of frustration. And now how do those lyrics now translate to you as an adult? Like with the with, you know, with Mad at the World. You know, what do you, what do you, are, are you still mad at the world? Um, in 2020, we probably all are mad at the world kind of, <laughs> but um, the funny, it's funny you mentioned that, you know how George mentioned Kill Em All way back in the beginning of the, you know, the recording, there's a line in the Four Horsemen that says, uh, you've been dying since the day you were born, right? Um, so that's like, you know, every step I take brings me closer to death. Like you, you know, that's kind of like a, ru- a rub on that, but, but Monster Go actually is based off of the Robert Frost poem. Uh, st- stopping by the woods on one snowy evening, um, and it, it ends. Holy literacy, wow. Batman! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I swear to God, that's like you know, oh, that's that, I ripped. I totally ripped Robert Frost off. So, in the end, it's like you know, I got a monster go before I sleep. I have many promises to keep. So I'm like, man, that's freaking heavy, dude. Like you, you know, you're whatever, nineteen, twenty, and you have your whole life ahead of you. And look at all the stuff you're supposed to do. And at the time, I was like thinking, like you know, get good grades, graduate. Right. Um, get a job, you know, move out of the house. You know, you have all this stuff you have to do before you sleep, which is, you know, we're going to sleep. Now. And then the older you get and you achieve all these goals and milestones, you're like, man, I I'm closer to death than I was when I wrote that song. That is kind of heavy. Sorry to be so depressing, but. Yeah, I did. I totally ripped off Robert Frost on that one. So, wow, who knew? Like the hard way, I think he started that sort of lyric trend, right, Joe? And then probably did wrote a few of those songs after. But you know, it, it's all in the same vein. You know, it's like work hard. Uh, you know, try to get ahead, do the best you can, and you know, you know, you'll eventually get there. You know, but yeah. uh, it, it, you know, life in the Lower East Side's hard, hard. It's hard. You know, hard times, right? So it's all, you know, a lot of hardcore bands wrote along that same vein. And, uh, you know, you were just speaking really, you know, the truth of what we're all thinking. Yeah, it's universally applicable across generations. And what frustrated you as an 18 year old doesn't isn't the same thing as frustrating an adult. Right. But the frustration and the emotions are still exactly the same. Being sad with a capital S. Oh, well, today's world, especially Jesus Christ. Oh, that's controlled. Right. Um, That that was for like, um, I I remember writing that song because like, I forgot who I was talking to, but do you remember around 88 when the whole like straight edge movement like really took off and it wasn't just the ideology, it was like fashion wise. Right. And, you know, if you don't look like them. That football jacket you bought. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
right. I, I, <laughs> I'm kidding, Joe. I, I did buy the jacket, so I, but I didn't, you know, but I wasn't straight edge or, you know, I didn't like exclusively hang out with just straight edge people. Like, you know, do it because you like those people. Don't do it because it's like the cool thing to do, which I think was that the theme back then was like, oh, I'm going to convert straight edge and just do it because you want to, you know, um, not because it's a cool image, which I think there's definitely, there was a backlash about that imagery, you know, which I, I think even the guys in, Gorilla Biscuits and you today were like, that's not what we're trying to do. You know, I've, I've, I've seen them say that before. So it's just that when you're a, an 18 year old kid, you know, hanging out with those people and you see it, well, it's something to write about, you know? The last year has been incredibly difficult for a lot of us, right? Everybody's had people pass. The scene has had people pass. And I know that two things that really affected you guys were Riley from from Power Trip, um, you know, how did you and and Rich McLaughlin from from Raw Deal and Killing Time, and it, you know, the, you know, Rich being a friend of mine for thirty years, it's you know, still is 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 are very difficult to cope with. Um, but you know, how did you guys? I think it's worth talking about both those guys, so they're always remembered. And what I wanted to do is, you know, talk a little bit about you know, your relationship with this brand new band who happened to so sincerely adopt one of your songs and how you cultivated that relationship and what your friendship was like. There was an Instagram post, um, or was it Twitter? You know, sometimes you do a Twitter search for your band, you do a term search. And so it came up that uh, there was a band who would perform Outburst intro, right? The demo intro. Uh, and they would do it like on their live set and they would do it like four or five times in a row, just like I'd seen it. Crowd. I'd seen yeah. it multiple times. <laughs> so I'm like, who are these guys? Like, and so there was an article on them. I did some more research because once you go down the wormhole, you're like, oh, power trip. Oh, I never heard of these guys. You Google power trip because of that. And there was an article in the magazine called The Quietus where they were up and coming. This must have been around 2012, 13. Um, they had had an indie release and they were talking about their influences and it was just, it was just so like shocking to see them name all the bands that, including us, that they were influenced by, including Breakdown, Killing Time, Rest in Pieces, Leeway. And I'm like, wow, these guys are our, that's from our group, right? Our demographic. So when I had heard that they were going to come to Brooklyn in 2015, I actually reached out to, to the uh, to the Instagram of Riley on the outside chance, like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'd love to come down and see you guys. Um, and they also did a cover of breakdown, um, jail of depression, which is a Mike DeJean song. Shout out to Mike DeJean. Um, so I asked him if he wanted to come down and check these guys out with me. And then, uh, Mike Wells came along and there was this August night in 2015 where we introduced ourselves to them and we saw them do the intro for outburst. We saw them do jail of depression and we hung out with them like all night after that. And as flat as, as, as flattered as we were to see these kids were like, you know, 20 years younger than us do that. They, you could tell that they were kind of like just floored by meeting us. And then we're like, dude, we're just regular dudes who came down to see you guys. But it was very, very like a mutual admiration thing. Um, and then Riley, you know, we kept in touch, you know, we exchanged numbers and um, they're from Dallas and I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. So there was always also that aspect of like, you know, let's talk about fantasy sports sometimes too. When the idea came along, Bill, 
about uh, maybe putting together a compilation of these newer bands who were doing uh, opera songs. Um, they had originally wanted to do Hard Way, but I think Misery had claimed it. So they were like, well, how about can we do When Things Go Wrong? And I'm like, uh, yeah, you can do whatever you want. You're, you guys are like ridiculous. You know, you're amazing. And so I'll never forget, this was, um, I want to say 2016, 2017, when they were kind of like working it out with their their record company and their management so that they could appear on another label's uh, record. And Riley did take the time to like, yeah, listen, let's let's talk it out. I want to, I really want to do this. I don't want this not to happen. You know, this has to happen. And that really said to me, you know, like, geez, he really, he's an awesome dude. You know, he's dedication he's, to it. Yeah, he was taking it by yeah. the horns. You know, he was like, you know, get, talking to Arthur Rist, the producer, and about like how he could make it sound like a certain way. And I was like, you know, the, somewhere around that that time, I was like, man, this guy's such an awesome guy. So it wasn't like, you know. I would I would liken it to becoming he was a fan and then we became friends right and right. um you know the rest is history that he he and the band put us on for a cup uh, for a show at the uh, at the Elsewhere Club in 2018 they went on Canadian TV and did when things go wrong as like a you know a dress rehearsal for the recording of it on Canadian TV the House of Strombo oh yeah that's right all the songs you could have done and you did that on you know Canadian television. Yeah, and it's a great video too. Yeah. It really is. Yeah, it looks, you know, and it sounds amazing. I mean, it sounds almost as good as a recording. Does. Oh man, you know, like when they gave us the, the the rough cut of that of their recording of when things go wrong, I was like almost ashamed. I was like, this is so <laughs> this is so freaking good, man. I was so also very flattered. We all were. Um, so to to you know, and then we maintained a text relationship. Whenever he would come to town, I would see him if I could. Um, we'd bring, you know, bring the guys out. Mike Dijon also became very close with some of the guys in Power Trip also. So there I was this August trying to get a tie on ISIS in Corona. And I get this text and someone asking me, is this real? And it was the Brooklyn Vegan article about him passing away. And I'm sitting there, my, my turn is up to order the ISIS. And I'm like, I had to get offline because I couldn't believe that I, what I was reading, you know? Um but yeah, it was very sad, and we're just so grateful that they took one of our songs and you know gave it for took it for a ride, put it on Sirius, you know, um, put it on House of Strombo on Canadian television, and you know it's just it's kind of funny because he, he it's it's like the you mentioned the before about how the internet the age of internet well if there wasn't Twitter then I wouldn't have seen that post that tweet. And none of this is, you know, I wouldn't have done the digging and none of this would have happened. So that's sort of like a, a, a pro of being in the internet age, you know? <laughs> yeah, that, that's pretty crazy, you know? And then, you know, so obviously devastating news for so many people because the guy was so great. You know, personally, I only had limited dealings with him, but like all the conversations were just totally enthusiastic and down to do whatever and just really great. So it's a, it's a terrible terrible loss for the scene, terrible loss for, you know, the, the music community and just, you know, a, a very sad thing. And, you know, and then, you know, with the one, two punch or one, two, three, four, five punch that 2020 is, mm -hmm. you know, just a few days ago, as of this recording, we found out that somebody we've known for, for 30 years is now, you know, 30 plus years is, 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 is gone. And, you know, uh, outburst 
and 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 uppercut were sort of joined at the hip with Rodil through you know, a lot of the early days, you know, especially, you know, through your kind of mutual Queens friendships, but then that grew to a friendship between the bands. You were talking about how Drago influenced your style, you know, and, you know, so, you know, Rich was always the sort of band ambassador. He would talk to everybody. He would do that. And you're kind of the the band ambassador for, for Outburst in a lot of ways. So, you know, Talk about a little bit about Rich, you know, and and how you you guys met and kind of, you know, some of your your conversations, because, you know, it's always nice for people to talk about not just the bullshit of shows, but, you know, who people really were. He had a, he had this really strange sense of humor, um, which, you know, Bill, I know you've touched on on your Instagram posts uh, and your remembrance in memoriam of Rich. I just want to share a story that I saw him the last time I saw him was in January of this year at the Amityville Music Hall. It was uh, Crown of Thorns opening up for Killing Time or opening for Killing Time. Um, and I, I only live like 15 minutes from there. So I figured I'd go down and say hi to the guys. Also, Mike Dijon was playing in Crown of Thorns. So I figured I'd support him. Um, and of course, Killing Time. By the way, they, they I think it was the first appearance of their pizza shirts. Have you seen their Piping Hot New York City? Oh, it's a great shirt. It's a great shirt, yeah. So I, I, my aim was to go down and get one of those. But um, you know, before the show, we're talking, and and Rich is like, "Hey, man, it's good to see you." Two things I remember about this. Uh, he was like, "Where have you been with the your Sunday Instagram piano post, man? I haven't seen one of those in a while." <laughs> I'm like, "Dude, you really you pay attention to that stuff?" He was like, "Oh yeah, dude, that inspires me. You know, I want to see what you're gonna play next." I'm like, "I didn't really think that anybody gave a shit about that." Yeah, hey, I like him too. <laughs> so I remember that. And then, you know, of course that's totally not hardcore. And neither was this, we were talking about, you know, how his life been. I asked him how his, you know, his girlfriend was, he's like, Oh yeah. It's like, I've been going through therapy about that. And I thought he was, I thought he was putting me on. I'm like, yeah, get out of here. Really serious. He's like, no, serious. I, I've been going through therapy. And I go like, do you cry in these sessions? Cause I love a grown man cry because, Oh, because he's also, he also thought that my, um, Fonzie crying at Christmas time uh, at the ravioli can. Oh, right. This is going to need some background for the, for the listeners out there. But every Christmas I do this Instagram post, like a night before Christmas where um, Fonzie uh, lies to the Cunninghams about having a place to go to on Christmas Eve. And he doesn't, he just sits alone in his garage eating a can of ravioli. That that's a real episode. And so Rich was like, those are hilarious, man. I love that every year when you do that. <laughs> So I would I would always say that that made me cry, and I I love a good grown man cry, as a kid, but as an adult, it's even funnier to me because to see a grown man cry, it's kind of like I don't know if it's a fetish or whatever, but that makes me laugh uncontrollably. So Rich is like, when he told me about the therapy, um, and I didn't ask him what for, but he was just going through some like self introspection. I'm like, do you ever get like these breakthroughs where you cry? He's like, oh yeah, I man, I cry all the time. And so I started laughing at that and I felt bad. I'm like, dude, I'm sorry, man. He's like, no, don't feel sorry. That if I could see me crying, I would laugh my ass off at myself. <laughs> <laughs> and the third thing I remember is it was in, in January. So COVID hadn't really reached our shores yet, but it was kind of here, but not. Uh, it wasn't like an outbreak yet, but we we're so close to each other talking because it's obviously loud in the club. And I was talking to Drago and Carl and, and Rich like there was definitely like spittle being like you know, <laughs> you know exchanged in your, each other's faces. Yeah, that's how close close talking we were. Um, 
And that that's it's it's just kind of sad that that's the lasting memory because I know they were supposed to play the A7 in May, but with the COVID outbreak, you know, I would have definitely went down to that. But with the COVID outbreak, it didn't. It just didn't happen. All the live music got shelved. So that would have been the la- the next time I would have saw him. But as it stands, my lasting memory is of him telling me that he did man cries and it was okay to laugh at him. So uh, you guys played a lot of shows together back in the day too, right? Oh yeah. Do you yeah, have any well, like lasting yeah. memories from any of those shows? Um, well, the, 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 the good one was 2017 when we did the uh, Brooklyn Bazaar. Um, and that kind of was like a sort of a comeback show because we had Brian back in the fold. Right. Um, with Crime Watch, Nine, uh, King Nine and uh, Ice Cold Killers. It was just so good to see those guys again, you know? Even we played a show with them with Breakdown at Brooklyn Bazaar like a couple years later. And I just remember, you know, being in the back, chilling with those guys. And you know, just like George said, they're regular everyday bridge and tunnel dudes, you know? Yeah, I mean, there was no pretense with the Rage. I, I, did, I really didn't know him uh, like as well as Bill or not even close, but, you know, or not as close as you, Joe. But, you know, every time I did speak to him, it was just really friendly. And, you know, you'd say anything in front of him. And I remember introducing my wife to him when we did the reunion show. And we were chatting for a while. And, you know, there was never any pretense with him. He was just a really good guy and and very funny. And and that little dark sense of humor, you know, uh, was great. And I'm sure he got a kick out of the the van and back from Albany. I'm sure he loved it. Yeah, you could say anything to him. And he would listen attentively. And it was just one of those things where he, he, it was remarkable that he never took offense and he was genuinely interested. And that's the part of him that will, you know, that all of our friends will remember is just his wry, quirky sense of humor, his sense of introspection. And it just fucking sucks that he's not going to be around anymore. It really does. And Darren, I saw you um, on your Instagram recently, you played, uh, was it safe alone in a crowd? Safe in a crowd? You did the bass intro for Breakdown. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was like, you a, know, because kind of those tribute. bass lines, they're they're just like they get impr- imprinted into your brain because they're just so. The the thing is, they're like simple, but they're so like complex at the same time. <laughs> because how do you make something so simple so hard and just so effective? You you hear it, you immediately want to crush stuff. So, oh yeah. yeah. Rich's playing on um, on that breakdown demo is just incredible. Like the whole demo is incredible for the first breakdown demo. Um, but yeah, now I, I went back and listened to it recently after he passed, like last week. And like, man, he was really, like you said, he was simple. It was so good, so simple, yet so like on point with yeah. with the music they were doing. You know? Yeah, the, the breakdown demo to me is like a top three hardcore pick of any album from hardcore. That 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 I'll state. That's how good he was. That's how good that was. Uh, and forever be etched in time as, as that, you know, it's just great. You know, it's funny to me. I don't know if this is a little blackout thing, but for me, I got the seven inch first. So I only, how many songs was on it, Bill? It was just four on the seven inch. Oh God. No, it's like no, seven or eight. I think it was the whole, hold on. I have one sitting on my wall. I have to take it off. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just remember that there wasn't the full spectrum of songs uh, on the seven inch. Like I remember hearing it later on on the internet and there was like nine songs and I was like, where the hell have these other like five songs been this whole time? You know what I mean? Because I guess you couldn't fit it all on a seven inch. Right. So the cassette, like the, the original tape probably had more songs. 
So it was a yeah. little bit like opening up a, a treasure chest when I heard that shit. <laughs> it's actually pretty funny because I just looked the breakdown seven inch and I totally forgot that the seven inch is not a doesn't have this track list on the back. So hold on, I have to look at the lyrics here. <laughs> there is a one, two, three, four, five. Six songs. Six. Okay. And there's nine on the demo, right? Like the full demo. I haven't listened to yeah, the Yeah, I want to say there's, there's more than six. For sure. probably, yeah. 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 I don't know what's what's on. I don't know. I now I have oh God. Now <laughs> this is like testing my freaking I need some ginkgo biloba. <laughs> well, the guys, I know that they did the re-release on Painkiller, I think. Or I don't remember yeah. Painkiller. But that was definitely like, you know, because I think they also threw the uh Crucial Chaos. Set. Yeah, they, they put the crucial cast yeah. on that. So, like hearing those things, I was just like, "Oh, there's more songs." I had no idea. Oh, we used to cover uh, downtime, like in the studio when we we're practicing. You know, you got two hours, but you get some downtime and you fool around. We would do, um, we would do labeled, like that. Like George said, that whole demo was just incredible. Like you know, we wanted to like just you know like take a break from our own music and just like do a cover, right. and we definitely covered labeled. Um, and Brian would never want to sing, so I would I would try and sing and play drums at the same time. That's that's hard. Oh, it's so, so hard. It's so hard. So props for Collins. Yeah, I would <laughs> say like maybe three or four of my bands have covered Breakdown and Killing Time. You know, throughout my whole playing history, those bands like both meant a lot to me. And actually, one thing that I will probably get a lot of shit for. My friends already know this, but. Uh, because of my like timeline with hardcore, I got into it in like the late nineties. Uh, the method is actually my record, you know, like Brightside is like everyone's favorite record, but the method that was my shit. <laughs> so, so you're the one. I'm the one. <laughs> <laughs> I might be the one person, but I love Brightside too. Don't get me wrong, but I just feel like the method. There's something about it. It's a little bit heavier. I don't know. Do you guys, so, you know, I think as, as far as you guys touring, right, you guys played pretty much the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic when you were together. You didn't do a lot of other touring until you went to Europe to play a handful of shows with Terror. Do you regret not touring more as kids? Yeah, I, on my end, though, yeah, I, I, I don't think so. It was tough for us, you know. We were doing so many things. We were in college, pretty much all of us, uh, working jobs and, and, and doing the band thing. We were just getting frustrated a lot of the times because you couldn't tour comfortably. You know, you're in a van for two days with four other dudes thinking it up. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I can't speak for JoJo, but for us, it was it was wearing a little thin, and that's one of the reasons I think we broke up. But, you know, uh, what was it, nineteen ninety, Joe? Oh yeah, like George says, we were busy. Like it, touring was great if you could drop everything and go and make it work with your employer or your or you know we were like like George said, we were college matriculated students, so you couldn't just take off at a moment's notice and you know be gone for like a couple of weeks and you know. Your grades would go to shit, or your boss would be like, "Get the fuck out of here!" And I'm not, you know, you don't get paid vacation. So the, when we were younger, we really didn't have those opportunities, and it was okay to us, you know. Um, but I think the point is also that you guys never, you know, 
you guys never really looked at Outburst as like a career path or being a musician is something that you wanted to do where you thought you could do it. It was a beautiful moment in time, but it wasn't something that you were going to sit there and say, I'm going to do this. Yeah, no, well, it, 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 the only way to make money, Bill, you know this. I mean, you had to cross over, you had to be hip hop, you had to be uh, metal hybrid, uh, BC Boys is bigger at the time, you know, Radiance Machine, Face No More, these, these crossover bands. Uh, that's what was popular in, in 90, 91, 92. Uh, and we didn't want to play that kind of music. We wanted to play hardcore. And if we weren't going to do it, we weren't going to do anything. And, you know, we were pretty much like, we knew the writing on the wall was there that we couldn't make a living out of this. So it was one or the other. We were like, we're not going to do it right. And, you know, we're just going to call it quits and let, you know, our music that we wrote stand for itself and, you know, uh, move on, you know, and, I think we made the right decision, you know, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, at, at the time, you know, again, only bands that were commercially successful after that pretty much were, were crossover bands. Well, one factor I want to point out too, that everyone seems to forget is how high the rent is in New York city. So you actually have to work a lot to pay your rent. Whereas other places, maybe you could just have a house for like the same price as a one bedroom apartment in New York. So I don't understand how people go on tour all the time when you're in New York city. Like it's just not possible. I agree. Yeah. I mean, but now as adults, you guys were able to go to Europe with terror. How was that experience? You know, you guys had a few days in Europe together to hang out, like talk a little bit about that. Oh yeah. It was uh, it was great. It was a great time. And uh, you know, we got the nightliner boss and went to these big venues and people who barely speak English, you know, are singing along to our songs. It, it was kind of like a fulfillment almost to, to us to see that the music traveled well after all these years, like that tour. And then like the compilation um, and, you know, the reissue that, that just, the music just traveled well along the years. That's, that's what it, that's what it says to me. And I'm very grateful for that, you know? Is there any is there any outstanding outburst songs that riffs that you wrote or lyrics that you wrote that that are incomplete that never saw a recording? Were you writing new stuff or was the seven inch it? No, I think that was it. We didn't we didn't really have anything out. We we we, we blew our load with the uh, demo and the EP and then the, the two songs from Where the Wild Things Are. <laughs> uh, it's one album's worth of material, I guess, if you put it all together, right? But that was it. You know, that was pretty much it. We didn't really write much after that. And, uh, you know, we, I guess we saw the writing on the wall and, you know, uh, you know, it was interesting story, Joe, you, the way we broke up, we're, we're supposed to go to a show. And then Brian said he, he wasn't going to come and but he was like, and I'm like, we're out of this. We don't do this anymore. And he was like, yeah, me too. And that was it. Yeah. He kind of gave us our ticket out. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, Trust me, I remember that. I remember that night very well. I was standing at the Anthrax with a bunch of fucking seven inches, and you dicks <laughs> fucking show up. We actually went to go shoot basketball in Astoria Park, so to bring it back to Astoria. Oh, after all your experiences, right? After you know, doing the record, doing the demo, being on hiatus, you know, how do you think your life is different because of this band? We were like brothers, you know, it was a band of brothers. We, we did our thing. We had a great time doing it, you know, it's like, and we never gave a shit. There was no rules. There was no, 
we never cared about what we looked like. We never cared about anything. It was a sense of freedom for us for that one period of time in our lives where we just had a ball and we would joke around in the van and goof. You've been in those vans with us. It was hilarious. We were just goofing around, just busting on each other all day. It was just great. And uh, now we can look back and we have this amazing body of work that we're proud of, you know, and it's just, you know, fantastic that we, we have that to look back on. And it reminds me of those times. Uh, and, and if people are into it, that's fantastic too. But, you know, for just myself and Jojo and Mike and Jay and, uh, you know, Brian, we, we have that to look back on. We'll always have that. You know, life goes fast. And, you know, when I look at those vinyl pieces that you sent over, though, it just really warms your heart. It's, it's, it was a great part, part of our lives. Did you guys take anything that you learned from hardcore uh, on with you in your your like later lives, you know, into your careers, whatever it may be, like a work ethic? How, how did it actually like affect you? Yeah, to get up there in front of that crowd of people uh, coming from Queens and uh, maybe not dressing and fitting exactly the way those Lower East Side guys were, uh, you get side looks and stuff when you were coming in, especially with, I'm sure Jojo with his Teddy Gibson shirt, got some side looks. Um, but you know what? If you can do that and you can walk into CBGBs and play in front of Rabies and those crowds and Crazy J Skin and, you know, Vinny Stigma, uh, Jimmy Gestapo and play your songs and, and they're all clap and, and cheer you and you leave, it's, it's, you know, you can do anything pretty much. And that's that's what I take from it. It's a, there's a toughness to it, you know? to vibe off of what George was saying, it definitely gives you a feeling of accomplishment. Um, I just remember one, one tweet I saw like maybe five or six years ago of some kid who put the lyrics of thin ice into his um, high school yearbook. That was his quote. I was like, I was like, what the hell, man? Like all I was doing is like just writing, I was trying to make rhymes for a hardcore song. And here's some kid who I'll never meet. And he, you know, put online for everyone to see that he took one of my lyrics and made it his quote, you know, as you go forward in life after high school, like stuff like that, you know, seeing kids sing your songs back to you and then seeing bands like, you know, be excited to like do the, do your songs for you on a tribute record. You know, it's, it's definitely a feeling of accomplishment. And we weren't setting out to set the world on fire. And like George said, we didn't give a shit. It just, whatever, I, I'm, I would say, I'm, it's pretty safe to say we, we never had a plan about any of this. It just fell into place. Um, you know, with the help of, you know, people like you and uh, along the way and, you know, much later on to document the stuff, Darren and, you know, the fans and, and bands like Power Trip and Higher Power and Outskirts and Crime Watch, et cetera it just fell into place. And it's because the music that we wrote, you know, I guess stands the test of time as far as hardcore goes. Um, you know, I'd say we left the mark and, you know, I, and I'm pretty proud of that. So I, I just, I, I would like to go to like, if it all ended tomorrow, right. I would say like, I, I left the mark, you know, something I did, something I contributed to was I was a part of, um, made a difference, you know?
Sound design and mixing for Mad at the World is by Brad Worrell at Soundwave. Illustrations for each episode are by Christian Minnick. You can follow his art at Cortoons on Instagram. And if you like what we're doing, follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter at BlackoutNYHC, and on Facebook and YouTube at Blackout Records. Got a comment or a suggestion for us? Hit us at matw at blackoutrecords.com. See you next time.